Uh, if you got your Bibles, open to 2 Peter chapter 2, 2 Peter chapter 2, and then we're going to jump back to Acts chapter 4, starting in verse 32, and then in uh, to chapter 5, all right? Uh, so, just so you know, uh, the passage that we're about to jump into this week uh, is a little bit of a heavy one. Just be ready for that. Uh, this is one of those that, uh, I didn't fret over this one, but uh, because we start at the top of a passage and work our way down, uh, we've started in Acts chapter 3. This was one that I kind of had circled on the calendar that was like, eh, this one's going to be a doozy. And so just so you know, a uh, great lesson to take notes on has to do with integrity, uh, but it also includes the story of two people dropping dead in the middle of the church. And so uh, it's like I said, it's a heavy one. There's some great teaching that we can uh, that we can get from this passage. Uh, but again, once you know, there's been a lot of fear and trembling. There's been a lot of, uh, of prayer and time uh, that's gone into the study of this passage, and I want to impart some of that knowledge to you today. All right, so uh, Acts chapter 4, but we're we're going to start in 2 Peter chapter 2, um, starting in verse 1. As you're flipping that direction, um, have you ever watched something small destroy something big before? Have you ever watched something small destroy something big before? Um, this has happened to me recently. Um, if you have a favorite sweater that like you finally, the weather's starting to turn cold and uh, you pulled it out to figure out if, if you still are, are light enough to fit into it. I mean, have you had one of those experiences before? So I get the sweater out and I'm like, oh, I can't wait to put it on. It's my favorite sweater. Sweater, and sure enough, what I do, it still fit, which was a huge win, number one, all right? And then all of a sudden, I see like one little thread sticking off on the side. Have you ever had that happen before? And it's like, no, that one little thread, you know, just with a little bit too much force, a little bit too much effort, all of a sudden, it can unravel even the greatest of sweaters, right? And so for me, I find that little thread, and then I'm like, okay, I'm going to cut it with scissors. And when I cut it with scissors, that did not help. It made it even worse. And then I was like, okay, I'm just going to pull a little bit on that thread and maybe it won't cause any damage. And then sure enough, the whole fall, the whole bottom of the sweater falls off, right? I mean, it's just kind of the way it goes. Well, then it no longer is my favorite sweater. It is my favorite rag because we cut them into pieces and we use them as rags uh, in the kitchen. And so if you've ever watched something small destroy something big before, or if you've seen uh, the movie Titanic, or if you're a student of, uh, of the, the history of the Titanic, uh, Titanic did not hit the iceberg head on. It glanced on the side of it uh, and the scraping up against the hull uh, caused a massive hole uh, to form in the side of it. And the ship that was deemed unsinkable, uh, even something small like an iceberg, even a large iceberg uh, could take down something that was seemingly unsinkable. There are some things that happen in the life of a church like ours where you're experiencing spirit-filled, Christ-centered growth and boldness. And what happens? Why doesn't the church just continue on that trajectory? Well, in many cases, it's something very small that the enemy does from the inside of the church that causes that boulder of strength to just be chipped away and whittled away until it falls to pieces. Um, in Scripture, it tells us that when persecution comes upon the church from the outside, that is actually a catalyst for great growth and blessing. Jesus himself says, blessed are you when you are persecuted for the sake of my name. Persecution from the outside, man, that's like fertilizer for what the Lord does in here is our eyes stay on him. When the persecution comes at us from the outside, we say strong as a unit, and the Lord then uses us powerfully to reach the community. But when you have an agent of sabotage, if the enemy can get you on the inside, that's when it ends up pulling the entire sweater apart. Peter writes about that in 2 Peter chapter 2, and this is so interesting. The passage that we're about to read today uh, in Acts, I truly believe Peter was thinking about when he writes 2 Peter uh, decades later. Look at what it says here, 2 Peter chapter 2, uh, starting in verse 1. 
He's talking again about how amazing the church is going, how things are growing. And there's it. he says, but there were also false prophets among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you. Underline and highlight among you. He actually is talking to us at this point in the passage. In the same way, there were agents of chaos and sabotage in the midst of the growing church fellowship. He says, during his day and time, it will be the same. The enemy tries to destroy us from the inside out, and that will always be his plan, even to this day and into the future. It says, they will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the sovereign Lord who bought them, bringing swift destruction on themselves. Many will follow their shameful ways and will bring the way of truth into disrepute. In their greed, these teachers will exploit you with stories they have made up. Their condemnation has long been hanging over them. Look at this. And their destruction has not been sleeping. Circle, highlight, and underline, and their destruction has not been sleeping. You ever had a situation before where God seems to bless someone who is persecuting you and causing you trouble? Have you ever had that moment before where you're just like, Lord, why do you continue to bless them when they are somebody who seems to be completely against you? Here's what Peter writes. He says, remember, the Lord's not sleeping on this one, all right? He knows exactly what's going on. He knows their heart. He knows what's in their mind and the wicked schemes that they've hatched. And the Lord is fully aware of the person who is persecuting people of the faith. That's a powerful thing for us to remember. And he comes back and says, remember this, that their lamp will basically be taken from the stand like we read in Revelation Last week, uh, if they fall into this attitude, many will follow those shameful ways and be brought, uh, and uh, the truth will be brought into disrepute. If you're taking notes, it leads you to remember this. Uh, write this down. Are you ready? Church attendance does not guarantee a relationship with God or the presence of integrity. Let me say that again. Church attendance does not guarantee a relationship with God or the presence of integrity. All right? The idea here is that when you decide who you want to date, the fact that they just attend a church is not quite good enough to check them off the list, all right? In the same regard, if you're going to start a business with somebody, if you're going to move in with somebody, right? Just the fact that they go to church or put church on a resume is not just something that you can say, I'm just going to check it off the list. Make sure you do your due diligence because the church is filled by nature with broken people. That's one of the beautiful things about what a church is. We say regularly with our staff, our church is meant to be a hospital for sinners and not a club for saints, right? The idea is that we are all moving and growing at our own pace. Get to know the individual and don't just blindly trust them because you met them here at church, right? Churches are filled with all different types of people. Now, if you're the type of person, by the way, that goes, does that mean uh, that I'm one of the lowest of the low here because I've got problems? No, we've all got problems. My dad used to say it this way. He said, if you ever find the perfect church, don't join it because you'll ruin it, all right? The picture there is churches are filled with imperfect people and we're all striving in our relationship with God. But there are some that see the church as an opportunity. If that's the circumstance, Peter says there are those among you that will seek to secretly introduce destructive heresies and whittle away just like the sweater or just like the scrape on the side of the Titanic, the side of the hull, to just whittle away piece by piece and pull apart, even if they realize it or not, to whittle away at the powerful thing that the Lord is up to. So it begs our big million dollar question today. How does the enemy seek to destroy a spirit-filled church? How does the enemy seek to destroy a spirit-filled church? Now, this is a macro lesson with a very micro, uh, with a very micro uh, practical application. 
Each one of us has to address the issue of integrity within our own hearts because when we portray ourselves to be something that we actually are not on the inside, then we place ourselves for judgment in the hands of Almighty God. Now, that's a pretty heavy statement, and we're going to get to see it today enacted through the story of Ananias and Sapphira uh, and them making a decision to lie to the Holy Spirit. We're going to talk about that in just a minute. They lie to the Holy Spirit, and then they literally drop dead right there in the midst of the church people. Anytime you tie in drop dead in church, it makes for a pretty fun sermon, all right? Let me just tell you, it's a very, very heavy deal. That's why I said I came into this with fear and trembling this week, really praying through what I should preach and how we should navigate it, you just need to know. Um, we're going to read about two people that drop dead because of a lie that they tell, and then people will always say, um, is that going to happen to me today? And here's the answer. It could, all right? The same God that enacts it in this circumstance could enact it today. Um, is he going to? I don't know, and honestly, uh, that has not been my experience. I've not been in many church services where people have just dropped dead, okay? So just know, as we go into this, we go into it realizing when we lie about the truth and it becomes something that's on the inside of us laid bare before the Lord, then you place yourself in his hand for judgment. And that is a pretty powerful thing to do. Let's look at how that unfolds. You ready? Look at Acts chapter 4, and we're going to start in verse 32. Uh, again, this passage that we read last week as the lead-in. In the original uh, in the original copy of the book of Acts, the, the chapters and verses were added later so that it would help us with study. Originally, chapter 4 and chapter 5 all blended together, and you're going to see that in just a second. Here's what it says, verse 32. Now all the believers were together, uh, one in heart and in mind, and no one claimed that any of his possessions were his own, but they shared everything that they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and much grace was upon them all. There were no needy persons among them, for from time to time, those who owned lands or houses sold them, and they brought the money from the sales and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was destroyed distributed to anyone as they had need. Now look at verse 36. Even Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. Stop right there for just a minute. And that's how we ended last week. The early church is together, one in mind and spirit, boldly proclaiming the name of Jesus Christ and the gospel message and the power of the resurrection. And all of a sudden, the church begins to grow in such a powerful way and it goes from a theological connection they have to all of a sudden there is this justice connection they have to go, man, we need to share with our brothers and sisters. We talked about it last week. They go, man, we are not owners of God's blessings. We are managers of God's blessings that he has bestowed upon us. And all of a sudden, somebody comes up and gets the idea where they go, man, the Holy Spirit has told me to sell a field and to lay the proceeds at the disciples' feet. The idea there is not to give it to the pastor, but what they've done is with no strings attached, laid this blessing and said, Lord, do with it as you will, and I trust this organization, not blind faith in the institution, but saying, Lord, I trust you, I trust what this organization is doing, and Lord, let's bless our community, let's take care of people so that they don't have to live without. We then have the example of Barnabas. Remember, just about everybody's Joseph and Mary back in those days. There's a whole bunch of Josephs. And so because of that, in this circumstance, Joseph shows up 
and in a powerful moment led by the Holy Spirit, lays this offering at the feet of the apostles. And at that point, they go, dude, you're always encouraging everybody. You're not Joseph anymore to us. You are son of encouragement. You are Barnabas for the rest of your life, all right? In fact, for the rest of Scripture, he's not referred to as Joseph anymore. He's referred to by his nickname, Barnabas. It's his name. It's his reputation. It's who he is in Jesus Christ as a disciple. And all of a sudden, we have an organization where people are beginning to watch from the outside when God gives us something and we are not owners of it but managers when we lay it back at his feet when he calls for it there is a power that stirs in our entire community and for Barnabas you even gain a new reputation and a new name now for believers in Jesus Christ and disciples that's a pretty powerful thing but for someone who's just hanging out in the church and checking it out they see it as a pathway to power And that's what happens with Ananias and Sapphira. They don't see the movement of the Spirit. They see the pathway to having control and to having power in the midst of a group of people. Look at what happens next in chapter 5, verse 1. This is not a different story. This is a part of the same story. It says, Now a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira also sold a piece of property. Underline also sold a piece of property. With his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself. Out he brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. Now stop right there for just a minute. Remember, at the apostles' feet means no strings attached. But what he has just done in this circumstance is he has sold the field, he has gathered cash from it, and he has come in with the same posture as Barnabas and the ones who've come before that I am giving everything because that's what the Spirit called for. But instead, he lays it at the apostles' feet and says there are no strings attached. But in his spirit, he has held back for himself what the Lord has specifically called for. Now, over the years, I heard pastors preach to this, and it was like, all right, pony up, people, all right? Pony up. Want to empty those pockets, right? Because you don't want to end up like Ananias and Sapphira. That's not the proper way to preach this passage. The proper way to preach this passage is it all belongs to God, and if he calls for it, we lay it with no strings attached in the same way that he freely gave to us, we freely give it back when he calls for it and when he asks for it. If you're taking notes, write this down. How does the enemy seek to destroy a spirit-filled church? Number one is through partial obedience. Through partial obedience, when the Lord calls for all of it, we give all of it. And just for the record, this is not just financially. This has to do with your life and with your effort the same way. My dad taught me when I was younger. He said, never forget the disciples' prayer. The disciples' prayer day by day is, God, I'll do whatever you want me to do. With every aspect of your life, we are not owners of this existence, but we are managers because through Jesus Christ, we then become slaves to him. We belong to him because Christ died for us. The problem with praying that prayer of God, I'll do whatever you want me to do, is not the words coming out of our mouths or coming from our minds to Almighty God. The problem is in its implementation. It's tough to mean that prayer with your whole heart, soul, mind, and strength. Here's how we typically pray it. God, I'll do whatever you want me to do as long as I can make a certain amount of money. God, I'll do whatever you want me to do as long as I can date a certain person. God, I'll do whatever you want me to do as long as I can drive a certain car, live in a certain 
certain size house, have a certain set of community, be in a certain part of the country, and Lord, if all those things line up, then I will give you everything. The problem with that example is lordship. God calls for all of it, your entire life, full access to the life that he created. He formed us together in our mother's womb. He knew you better than you could ever know yourself. When it comes to our relationship with God, we have to trust him. And the way that he loved us so much that he would send his son, there is a way for us to love him back the same way. If you're taking notes, I want you to write this down. Are you ready? Our love for God and our faith in him are directly tied to our posture of obedience. Let me say that again. Our love for God and our faith in him are directly tied to our posture of obedience. God loved us so much that he sent his son Jesus to die for us. How could we possibly love him back? We could never repay him for what he's done for us. But we do find what he asks of us in order for us to love him in 1 John chapter 5, verse 3. You want to talk about a really cool verse? This is a powerful, powerful verse in Scripture that I believe every believer must truly take hold of. Are you ready for this? Look at 1 John chapter 5, verse 3. I know this one well, and in seminary, I had to write pages and pages on this particular verse. Are you ready for this? Look at what it says in verse three. This, by the way, is not just any John. This is the John who uh, was at the foot of the cross when Jesus entrusted his mother to him right before he took his last breath. John was the only male disciple that was there uh, when Jesus took his last breath. Not only that, John saw the empty tomb. John is the one referred to as the disciple whom Jesus loved. He was there for the feeding of the 5,000. This is the John who has experienced Jesus like few on earth ever could. Look at what he says. He says, this is love for God. Circle, highlight, and underline that intro because that is a powerful statement right off the bat. This is love for God, to obey his commands, and his commands are not burdensome. Stop right there for just a minute. How do we love this almighty God that loved us so much that he would send his son? John says, by obeying him, by trusting him, that he is who he claimed to be and that his truth is the truth. When we do that in our obedience... He says, then we love the God that sent his son to die for us. And then it says, and his commands are not burdensome. I had to write a seminary paper. We had to pick one word in scripture uh, in this particular passage. And the word burdensome is the Greek word idios. We get our word idiot from it. It's kind of interesting. He says, and his commands are not Idios. Do you know what idiot actually means? Useless baggage, useless weight. That word idios that's used here for burdensome was the same word that was used for the weight that an Olympic athlete would lift in the early Olympic Games. It was the weight that was put on the sides, and it is just weight for the purpose of being weight, right? It's just weight for the purpose of seeing how strong the lifter is. Listen to me. This is love for God that we would be obedient to his commands. But listen, his commands are not useless weight to see what will finally break you. You ever watched a really, really strong athlete? And I'm telling you, they got the weight on the end of the bench press and they're pushing and pushing. And I'm telling you, there's a point where they've lifted so much weight, but then they lift and they lift and they get about halfway there. They start to shake and then it sinks back down. 
the goal of the commands of Almighty God are not to look at you and be like, oh, let's see what breaks her. Oh, let's see what breaks him into. Let's see that moment where they struggle and they just can't hold it up. All have sinned and fall short of God's glory. When it comes for the disciples' life, this is love for God, that we would be obedient and God has not set you up to fail. Amen? He has not set you up to fail. Sometimes we can talk ourselves into partial obedience because we say to ourselves, well, I was never meant to live up to this expectation anyway. God has not put before you what you cannot lift in Jesus' name. It begs the question, what is your posture of obedience? There are some of you in this room who deeply desire to love God with your whole heart, soul, mind, and strength. If that's you today, and you truly are so grateful. When we sing songs like, like again, the, the song that we sang at the end, I build my life upon you. It's a firm foundation. We cry out and we can feel that emotion stirring within us. When you have that emotion and that feeling and you go, Lord, I want to love you back the same way that you love me. The way that we do that is through obeying his word, through obeying the voice of the spirit and doing what he's called us to do. When we don't, it starts to whittle away at the sweater, and not just our sweater, but the sweater of our fellowship as well. Now look back at Acts chapter 5, and let's look at verses 3 through 6. Here's what it says next. It says, Then Peter said to Ananias, How is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit? Underline and highlight that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money that you received from the land. We get a little picture of Peter's heart in verse four. Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You have not lied to men, but you have lied to God. Stop right there for just a minute. What Peter says in this part of the passage is he looks at him and he goes, you've just laid this at our feet like it's everything, just like what we'd been talking about with these other groups, like with Barnabas and the ones who came before him. But you have laid it out there like it's everything when you know in your heart that it is not. You know the Spirit has called you to something deeper. This is not Peter looking at him and going, pony up, I want the rest of it. He's looking at him and going, why did you lie about this? The sin is not between Ananias and his pastor. The sin is between Ananias and his God because God is the only one who knows that mistake that he's made on the inside. We live in a world right now where it's so surveillance driven that there are a lot of you in this room who go through life and the thought is, what are the cameras watching? What are the cameras seeing? And then is there something where I can portray myself one way while I'm being watched and another way when I feel like I'm not? Here's the problem with that. God sees everything, not just what we do, but the Lord also knows what we think. It says in Scripture, before a word is on our tongue, that God knows it completely. Now, just for the record, that's not meant to strike you with fear. It's meant to fill you with freedom. That that same God who knows what you think, knows what you do, knows what you feel before you even feel it, that he still loved you enough to send his son to die for you. What a powerful thing. When we pursue leadership in the church, and not just leadership from a position of teaching or preaching, but when you pursue being someone who can be looked to and counted on to lay things at the feet of Jesus and you don't actually do it, then we place ourselves for judgment in the hand of Almighty God. 
because he's the only one who knows that you're lying. Look at what happens next. This is crazy. Starting in verse five. When Ananias heard this, he fell down and he died. And a great fear seized all that heard about what had happened. Then the young men came forward, wrapped up his body, and they carried him out and they buried him. Stop right there for just a minute. What we have in this circumstance that's so interesting, and by the way, don't get hung up on fell over and died, all right? Like I said, there's not been many services I've seen that happen. Could it happen again? Absolutely, God can do whatever he wants to do. It was a warning, not just to this family, but it says that it struck the entire church body to go, integrity matters. And it doesn't just matter to the body, it matters to God. He cares how we get to where we're going. If you're taking notes, write this down. How does the enemy seek to destroy a spirit-filled church? Number one is through partial obedience. And number two is through selective truth. Through selective truth. When church members begin to decide what is true and what is not in regards to Scripture, then the Lord all of a sudden, many times, will remove his hand of blessing and will remove the hand of fellowship from that body of believers. If you don't take anything else away from today, I hope you write this down. Are you ready? To discard even a portion of biblical authority starts the process of suffocating your faith. Let me say that again. To discard even a portion of biblical authority starts the process of suffocating your faith. When we have the truth, the truth in its entirety is where the power comes from. When you begin to decide what's true and what's not, it all of a sudden creates this alternate universe and you begin to live on your own ranch somewhere off in the middle of nowhere. There's no better example of this, by the way, than Thomas Jefferson. You ever gone to Monticello and seen the Jefferson Bible? Jefferson was not a Christian. He was a deist. And what Thomas Jefferson used to do, you can go see his Bible. He cut pieces out that he liked and he cut pieces out that he didn't like. And so an absolute true story with Jefferson is there were so many times you could see his version of Scripture. But can I tell you this? There is no power to Zach Randall's version of Scripture or to Thomas Jefferson's version of Scripture. Scripture just is what it is. It says in the Bible that all Scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching. Every ounce of it is useful. And it's been given to us by God as the truth. When we start to whittle away... All of a sudden, just like pulling that thread on the sweater, all of a sudden it rips apart the entirety of the garment. It rips it to pieces. The words that kept coming to mind were stolen valor. You ever had a situation before where someone around you claimed that they had had success or claimed that they were in the military and they actually weren't, or they claimed that they had done something in a job situation and it actually hadn't happened? Stolen valor doesn't just happen in the military. Stolen valor in this city is when you feel like, if I just tweak my resume just a little bit, it's true, but it's a little bit of a gray area truth here, and you lean so heavy on that side, what you've done is you've been selective with the truth, and then you have placed yourself in the hands of Almighty God for judgment. Can I just tell you a secret? In this city... If the Lord wants you to have the job, if the Lord wants you to make the sale, if the Lord wants you to live in that house, if the Lord wants you to move back home, he will make it happen 
because he is the one who guides your steps. If you feel like you have to sin or lie or twist or bend the truth just a little bit to get what you want, then it probably is a situation where you are placing yourself in the hands of Almighty God for judgment. You ever been in a circumstance where somebody has told you the selective truth and not the whole truth, and it made you feel like an idiot? You ever had that happen before? Can I give you an example for Autumn and I? We uh, filled out a, uh, an entry form one time, and the entry form was at a deal called Grape Fest in Grapevine, Texas, and there was a big banner that said, it was kind of a carnival-type atmosphere, uh, and at Grape Fest, all of a sudden, they had this big banner, and it said, win a free trip. Fill out your information here. And so Autumn and I, I'm 25, she's 24, 23, and so we fill out the form, drop it in there, and then all of a sudden, a week later, we get a call that says, congratulations, you just won a free trip. And we were like, no, no way. And they go, you filled out a form at Grape Fest, and we selected you the winner. And we're like, oh, that's awesome. That's great. Way cool. What do we need to do to claim our prize? And they were like, we are going to do some drawings because there's a few winners, and we need to make sure that, uh, uh, that you guys are ready for your trip somewhere in the continental United States. And we're like, man, that's great. Where do we go? Where do we show up? And they said, please come to this spot. And when we get there, it's a room about like this, and it's a room about as full as it is right now. We walked through the doors, and Autumn and I were like, oh, no, we just got suckered. It was a timeshare presentation. We walk in, and I'm telling you, they sit us down. They tell us these big, moving stories about families that are going on these timeshares and how now is the time that you have to sign on for thousands of dollars. I'm telling you, we're sitting there, and the whole time it was like, oh, no. And then we're all, and they're like, we're going to get to your free trip. But first, and I mean, there was this big, long presentation. Well, sure enough, at the end of it, in order for us to get the free trip, we have to go and sit down. And what we found out was it wasn't a free trip. It was a $99 travel voucher for Southwest Airlines. That's what it was if we signed on for the timeshare. So finally, the guy that we're sitting with at the end is shaming Autumn and I to sign up for this, and he says, your kids and grandkids are gonna miss out on this amazing experience. Remember, we're 24 and 20, or 25 and 24, and we were like, we don't have kids or grandkids, and we'll be fine. Can we please just leave? And he goes, yeah, you can go. We walk out, and in the parking lot, we just feel sick to our stomachs, and it was like, oh, what did we just do? They told us the truth, sort of, but it wasn't exactly what was portrayed. Listen to me. When people feel that way in the church, it takes the boldness for Jesus Christ out of the equation. When people walk away and they go, I just don't feel like I got the whole truth. I just don't feel like they stood for the entirety of Scripture. I just don't feel like I feel like they pick and choose from the parts that they believe in and the parts that they don't. When we do that as a church... The power is gutted out of the ministry that God is doing. If you're taking notes, write this down. Our final question for this section, do you pretend that parts of the Bible aren't there? Do you pretend that parts of the Bible aren't there? If that's you, you are an agent to sabotage in the fellowship. We gotta believe all of it. It's just the way that it works. So many times the book of Romans is the one that's used to portray how salvation comes about. And the book of Romans is also filled with parts of scripture that are very hard to digest. So much so that Peter, in one of his letters, says, Paul speaks in ways that are so hard for many of us to understand. And yet the truth, 
the truth is the truth. The same scripture that teaches us to be saved is also the same scripture that tells us what falls short of God's standard. Do you pretend that parts of the Bible aren't there? It may seem like a small thing, but that thread can unravel the unity and fellowship in the church. Now look at what happens here at the end. This to me is the saddest part of the whole story. It's a really sad story top to bottom, but the saddest part here in verse seven, it says about three hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Peter asked her, tell me this, is this the price that you and Ananias got for the land? Yes, she said, that's the price. Peter said to her, how could you agree to test the spirit of the Lord? Look, the feet of the men who buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out also. At, the moment, at that moment, she fell at his feet, and she died also. And the young men came in, and finding her dead, carried her out and buried her beside her husband. It says, great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. Stop right there for just a minute. What we have in this passage is so interesting. Is Ananias is the one who is listed as selling the field in the early part of chapter 5. He's listed as the one who places the money at the disciples' feet. He is the one who enacts the lie, but his wife, at the very least, knows that this is taking place, and we don't find in this passage that she is part of the scheme, that she has heard about it. It's possible that she's the one who's helped enact this scheme, but you kind of have this feel in the same way that with Eve, she is the one who offers the apple to Adam. We now have the opposite side before you men step up and go, man, I can't believe women did that. Look at what happens here in this passage. It's the opposite. We have Ananias coming up with the scheme, laying it at the feet of the disciples, and now his wife is the one who's complicit, even though she's not the one who's laid the money from the field at the feet. We have this situation where she is a witness to wickedness. If you're taking notes, write this down. How does the enemy seek to destroy a spirit-filled church? Number one is partial obedience. Number two, selective truth. And number three is silent witnesses to wickedness. Silent witnesses to wickedness. When wickedness takes place, we should speak up. Now, just for the record, there's a difference between pointing out the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye when there's a plank in your own, Jesus says. But to sit idly by when somebody could very much hurt themselves, your family, and the church, then you gotta go to the leadership and say, hey, we need to have a conversation about this. Something's going on. If you're taking notes, write this down. If Sapphira had brought this to the apostles sooner, there might not have been any deaths in this passage. Let me say that again. If Sapphira had brought this to the apostles sooner, there might not have been any deaths in this passage. I find this story to be so interesting because what if while Ananias and Sapphira were talking about this at home, or she watched the sale take place and the deed signed over to someone else? What if all of a sudden she had gone, but the Lord told us to give all of it, and then she had gone to Peter and said, can you privately go to my husband and have a discussion with him? I think he's about to do something that he'll later regret. The whole passage could have changed. It all of a sudden would have turned into, we called you Ananias, but now we called you the forgiven. We called you the redeemed. We called you the saved. The person who turned and did the right thing, even in the midst of difficulty. But instead, she sits silent, and she becomes complicit. She becomes an accomplice to the wickedness that takes place.
I got a couple of stories for you on this and we'll close. I'll never forget, sometimes being a silent witness, the difference between being a silent witness and someone who truly stands up to evil, sometimes it's just one or two sentences that you say that you know you're supposed to speak. I watched this in the life of my dad years ago. I'll never forget, we were going to a place called 50th Street Caboose in Lubbock, Texas. 50th Street Caboose was like a little mini Dave and Busters, a very mini Dave and Busters. A little video game spot, had restaurants there, and, and then a bar area. And uh, it was a place where you go play video games. So I'm in the third grade, third or fourth grade, and then my brothers and sister, uh, my brother and sister are younger than I am. Um, my brother by four years, my sister by six years. And so they're much younger. And we're walking in the parking lot up to, uh, the, uh, up to 50th Street Caboose, up to the video game place. And we're holding hands as we walk. And then all of a sudden on the side, there's a convertible. And in the convertible sits a man and a woman and the man is being, at the very least, verbally abusive to the woman in the car, and it looks like it's going to escalate into physical abuse as well. And I can see it in my father's eyes. He's got his family with him, and as we're together, he knows he's supposed to do something in this situation. My dad, by the way, six foot, six foot one, kind of six foot and a half, and uh, big guy, bigger than I am now, big guy. He played center in, uh, in high school uh, in football, and so very intimidating man, dark beard at that point too, and uh, I'm telling you, my dad looks at us, and he says, I need y'all to go stand over on the side. He said, I want you away, but he said, I need to take care of something, and we were like, what's, what's dad gonna do? So we walk over to the side, and we're waiting, and my dad puffs up his chest, makes himself as scary as I'd ever seen him. He was pretty scary to begin with. Makes himself as scary as I'd ever seen him. And he walks over to the car and he says, is there a problem? That's all he says. Is there a problem? And the guy whips around and he goes, no problem here, sir. And my dad goes, I wasn't talking to you. Says to the woman, is there a problem? She says, I'm getting out of the car. She opens the door and she leaves, goes inside, and called a friend to come and pick her up. Now here's what's crazy. Did my dad save her life that day? I don't know, maybe. Maybe, I don't know. All I know is he was supposed to go over there and ask that question and make that statement. We quit standing up for people in the church, especially in this city. When someone is hurting, we just turn into an ostrich. And it's like we ostrich home and we ostrich to work and it's don't make eye contact, don't look at anybody, don't stand up for anybody, don't create a relationship with anyone that's around us. And the masks have made it even worse. We wear our masks to protect one another, but it's not meant to isolate us from everyone emotionally. We've got to come to a point where we still find a way to connect with people. In fact, in Hebrews, it writes about how we still need to entertain the occasional stranger in the name Jesus Christ. Go back and read it in Hebrews chapter 13. Entertain the occasional stranger for the sake of the gospel. We become silent witnesses to wickedness when the truth is sometimes we just need to say, is there a problem here? And then offer people an opportunity off the trail of wickedness and onto the trail of righteousness. And then there's other situations too. Sometimes we end up complicit in the wickedness. Silly example, but I hope it sticks with you. Last story for today. 
So in my fifth grade class, um, there was a guy and a girl who were starting a budding relationship, and I sat between them. It was the worst, all right? You ever had that situation before, watching the romance unfold? To make it worse, he sat here, she sat here. I was the diagonal piece in between, and so this is Texas history in fifth grade, and I was the one who they passed notes through the entire time. And here's what happened. My teacher that year was a man named Mr. Adams. Mr. Adams uh, was a, a former Baptist preacher, uh, had gotten lung cancer, and so he needed to move to a drier climate, uh, and uh, that was why he was teaching fifth grade Texas history. He was so much fun. Um, he always talked about himself in the third person, and so it was Mr. Adams thinks this, and Mr. Adams thinks that. He had a real Really, really deep southern voice too. He was he was a great teacher, great man. But again and again, very very moral man. Loved the Lord. So all of a sudden, I'd feel a tap on my elbow from the dude passing a note, and then what I had to do was take the note, and then I would hand it to the girl up on the other side. Well, sure enough, one day, Mr. Adams turns around and he sees me passing the note that's been tapped on my shoulder to the girl that's up there in front of me. And Mr. Adams turns around and he goes, oh, Zach, Mr. Adams doesn't like what Mr. Adams sees. And I said, oh. I said, it's not even mine. He goes, well, we'll be the judge of that. And Mr. Adams will make that decision. He opens it up and he goes, so you're the one passing the note to her. And Mr. Adams thinks, Zach, you just got caught in the middle. And I said, yes, sir. And he goes, well, Mr. Adams will see all of you after class. I mean, it was really blatant, the third person. Anyway, moving on, all that to say. We get back at the end of class, and he says, I want all three of you to write 200 times. I will not pass notes in class, and I expect it turned in on my desk at the end of the day, or turned in on my desk before the start of class the next day. At that point, I looked at him, and I said, I didn't do anything. I didn't do anything wrong. He said, yes, you did. You handed the note. He said, you are complicit in the sin. At that point, I turned to my buddy, and I said, then you write it for me since you were the one who wrote the note. And guess what my buddy said? He said, it's not my fault. You got busted for passing the note. At that point, I'm like, my mind is blown, right? And I'm like, why did I pass the note? Why did I do this? And so I wrote out the 200 times I will not pass a note in class. Can I tell you how the story ends? After a week goes by, what do I feel on my elbow but tap, tap, tap? And it's another note that he's trying to pass to the girl through me. And can I tell you what I did that time? When I felt tap, tap, tap on my elbow, I turned around in the middle of class and I said, no, I will not pass a note. Mr. Adams turns around and he smirked because he knew that I had learned my lesson. Now listen to me. You know why there's drugs in our community? You know why there's great violence in our community? Because we are complicit. Because we watch it. Because we don't necessarily come up with the idea, but we pretend like it's not there and we pass the note. You want to run the drug dealers out of our communities? Be the one that stands up and says, I'm crying uncle here. There is something wrong. What do we teach our kids when they feel uncomfortable? Raise your hand and yell, I need an adult. 
I need an adult. You want to run the drug dealers out of our community? You want to see again uh, the, the blood of Jesus Christ all over who we are? We got to come to a point where we say we will not tolerate wickedness. We will not turn a blind eye and sit silently complicit while the world is ripped to pieces. My dad used to say it this way. He said, you ooze who you are. You ooze who you are. Dad used to give this example. He said, over the years, he said, this was when, he was in, when he was in his 50s, he said, I've not been offered a drug by anybody in the history of my life. He said, do you know why? He said, I'm not looking down at anybody who's fallen into drug addiction. But he said, you know how I've not ever been offered a drug? He said, because I ooze, if you offer it to me, I'll call the police. I'll tell you try to offer me something that would hurt my community, that would hurt me, that would hurt my family, that would hurt our fellowship, then I will tattle. I will tell. So stay the heck away from me. It's the same way with an affair. Some of you sit there and you go, man, I just can't stay faithful because they're just after me. They're just after me. You know why they're after you? Because you ooze that you're interested because you ooze that you'll listen to what they have to say, because you ooze that you would like that ego stroke that you get from feeling the power over somebody flirting with you. The church, what tears apart the spirit-filled, Christ-centered boldness is when the church goes, eh, just give me that ego stroke, just hand me that note, I'll pass it. I'm not taking part in it, I didn't come up with the idea, and I'm certainly not the one receiving it, but I'll pass the note for you. When you do that, Peter says, these false prophets live among you and they seek to unravel the sweater to pull it to pieces. In integrity, you gotta make the decision. Is this your moment to walk up to the car and say, is there a problem here? I had courage to insert myself into your relationship. Or is it a point where you say, I ain't passing you a note anymore. And if you do it again, I'm gonna scream to high heaven that this is happening. When you do that, they leave. You realize that, don't you? When the light comes, the darkness flees in Jesus' name. When the light comes, the cockroaches scatter and they have to find another place to go because we're going to squish them or spray them with raid or whatever it takes to get rid of them, right? You got to come to a point where you realize we've become accomplices to destruction when we sit idly by with someone else's scheme. If you're taking notes, our final quote today, have you become an accomplice to destruction by silently harboring someone's wicked scheme? Let me say that again. Have you become an accomplice to destruction by silently harboring someone's wicked scheme? I love you guys. Thanks for listening today. This was a hard sermon to preach. I'm sure it was a hard one to listen to. Um, most of them are, all right? I want to encourage you. If the Spirit has called to you to deal with integrity in your heart today, don't leave today without listening. Let's bow our heads for prayer. With every head bowed and every eye closed, nobody looking around but just me, we call this our time of reflection. There's nothing mystical or magical about this time. Just a chance for us to stop and to process how we're different because of the songs we've sung, the sermon we've heard, and specifically the scripture that we've read. Is there anyone here today that would say, Zach, would you pray for me? It's time that I fully obey. It's time that I fully obey. If that's you, just for the record, that prayer that we prayed earlier, God, I'll do whatever you want me to do. That's the prayer of someone who's fully obedient. Lord, no hooks, no strings. 
God, I'll do whatever you want me to do. If that's you, I just want to pray for you. If you just lift your hand where you are right now. It's powerful. So many of you, so many of y'all can put your hands down. If that was you, I'm going to pray for you. But your prayer again is very simple. God, I'll do whatever you want me to do. And then when I pray that prayer, a lot of times I can feel the hooks in my spirit, the things that I'm holding on to. I want to encourage you. If that's you, just release them one by one. God, I trust you with my finances. God, I trust you with my relationships. I trust you with my family. I trust you with my living situation, with my job. Just release those hooks and then finally pray, God, I'll do whatever you want me to do. Second, maybe there are some of you here that would say, Zach, would you pray for me? There are parts of the Bible that absolutely are truth, but I've been pretending like they're not there. I've been writing my own Jefferson Bible with nobody looking around but just me. If you're here and you'd say, Zach, pray for me. Pray that I would see scripture as the truth. If that's you, if you would just lift your hand where you are right now. That takes a lot of guts, guys. That takes a lot of guts. Y'all can put your hands down. Thank you. Thank you. If that's you, I'm gonna pray for you. But just pray this simple prayer. Lord, your truth is the truth. Lord, your truth is the truth. And then last but certainly not least, maybe there are some of you here that would say, Zach, would you pray for me? It's time I walked over to the car and said, is there a problem here? Instead of just pretending to be an ostrich. Or maybe you'd say, Zach, would you pray for me? It's time that I stop passing the notes. You're not coming up with the scheme. You're not the recipient of the wickedness, but you certainly are the facilitator. And you'd say, I don't want that to be me anymore. With nobody looking but just me, if you're here and you'd say, Zach, pray for me. Pray that I would have the courage to stand up when someone is in need and pray that I would have the courage to say no to the facilitation of wickedness. If that's you, if you just lift your hand where you are right now, it's powerful, it's powerful. Y'all can put your hands down, so many of you. I've been there. If that's you again, this is how revival takes place. We've got to release it. We've got to be done with it. If that's you, pray this simple prayer. Lord, I trust you above all else. Lord, I trust you above all else. I will not be silent. I will not be silent. I'm going to pray for us, and then we'll stand. Father, thank you for this day and for your blessings in it. Thank you for the chance that we've had to study your word. Lord, I thank you for those who are here today who are claiming that they want to cry out with their whole heart, God, I'll do whatever you want me to do. I pray in the name of Jesus Christ you would bless that prayer today. Release the hooks in their spirit. And Lord, I pray we might see them truly live the life that you made for them to live. God, for those who are here today claiming that your truth is the truth, I pray that as they release control of their own lives and embracing the life that you have built for them, Lord, I pray that you would bless them like no other. And Lord, for those who are here today that are going to stand against wickedness or that are going to stand up to wickedness, I pray that you would give them a double portion of courage and Lord, that you would use them powerfully to bring about your kingdom. I love you, Lord. Speak in power in these final moments. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.